The show is supported in part today by Omeo. Omeo is a travel booking platform. We're talking about traveling. We're talking about leaving your house. We're talking about being with other people in the world. Uh, maybe people who don't even speak the same language as you. Isn't this amazing? Uh, this travel booking platform actually makes planning a journey in Europe and North America both pretty effortless. You just enter your travel details and then uh, Omeo will magically give you all the train, bus, flight, ferry options for your journey. It's like literally not ever been simpler to book uh, a real vacation. Oh man, are you excited? Best of all, uh, using Omeo saves you time and money and that's clearly a win-win. Uh, Omeo wants to help you leave your house this summer by offering 5% off your next booking. Just head to omeo.com, O-M-I-O.com and use the code LISTENER5 at checkout. LISTENER5, valid until June 30th for new users on all modes of transport. And it's uh, clearly just the pick-me-up that 2021 needs. Omeo, plan, book, and love the journey. Terms and conditions apply. Now, Let's do some rock and roll bedtime storytelling. Hey, you awake? Yeah. I just want you to know I hate you. So is my dad. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God. Why don't you tell me a story? How do you sleep at night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate sellouts. Rock and roll bedtime stories. We exist to set straight rumor and innuendo. You've heard about your favorite band from your favorite songs or Murdoch's favorite band. We have 50 episodes? Where are we? We're, we're, almost, we're almost there. We're getting real close. And it's not typical for us in any of those episodes to pull from current headlines, right? Um, but I think we'd be remiss not to mention this interview that happened recently. I don't know if you saw this. Did you see that Paul Stanley was talking to the folks from the Download Festival where Kiss is slated a headline in 2022? Actually, no. I did not see that at all. So basically, he says that after the 150 rescheduled shows they have left, which, holy cow, that's a lot. David Lee Roth was the opener at the right before lockdown. Really? I, yeah. It's so, you know, we just had Richard and Tom on, uh, from, uh, who wrote the book, Nothing But a Good Time, and there was a lot of stuff in that book about David Lee Roth that really made me laugh. Um, none of it was stuff that I wouldn't have guessed, but just about his flamboyance. And then about, and the other thing was there was a lot of talk about how all those bands in the 80s didn't really want to associate heavily with Kiss. Did you catch all that? There were a lot of times yeah. where people like either had a chance to go out with Paul Stanley or had a chance to open a Kiss show or a Kiss tour, and they all were like, nah, thanks, but no thanks. So it's really interesting how generationally that happens, right? And then it swings back around, and later these same bands are either going out on those tours or bands from the 90s were very thrilled and happy to, to play with Kiss, and, and you have those different you know attitudes generationally. But what's really interesting is uh, Stanley says that after they do this run, he swears it's going to actually, now I'm saying actually with a lot of emphasis, be the end of Kiss, uh. at least as a live band. And I like this quote because he says, quote, we're running around on stage with 40 or 50 pounds of gear and boots with eight inch heels and we do it well. But I also know that we can't do it forever because they are, what, 69 and 71 at this point. And does, did he really say that this is the end of them live? Because that's not what I heard was going to happen when this was over. So this is an interesting point because, you know, and I wanted to talk to you about this because I know we've mentioned it before, just even if not on the show, we've mentioned it to each other. This idea that you just hire new guys to be Kiss. Right. Yeah. You just send them out in the makeup. You and just it, go it around seems like, like if, if you're if you're Gene and Paul, then you just keep a bunch of money, right? You get a cut off the top and you let other people do the work and maybe the venues go down in size a little bit, but I don't know. I mean, I, this is probably something, at least these two guys 
doing this. Probably should have happened a long time ago, which is worth pointing out. The interviewer mentions that the guys did a farewell tour 20 years ago, and Stanley, you know what he says? He cops what to saying say? that they were just trying to get rid of Peter and Ace. He's uh, like, yeah, we, we were really, we were really just. It was more about who we were having to perform with at the time. Uh, yeah, that's bullshit. And I'm going to say <laughs> that I, I totally believe that because Peter went, and and of of the four of the original, Peter, in a way, objectively might be the least talented. Because if you you listen to those shows from '96 and and on, when yeah, Peter yeah. was still in the band, like you hear Peter playing the drums. And it's so much different than hearing other rock and roll players play play the drums. Well, you know? and like Peter eventually comes back. Even after 2000, Peter comes back. It's a, But Ace has yes. never come back after 2000. Well, the thing was is that Peter left, got fired, whatever, got pissed. But then Ace stayed a little longer. And then, you know, arguably the, the thing was is that Ace was a very popular draw. He was a fan favorite. Um, and people loved Ace. So I think, you know, I, I I do know someone that likes Peter Chris, big fan. But I think that once Ace left, then I think you, you got the two camps. Right. Of the, I love Kiss no matter what. And the, the people that said, well, this isn't the same band. Yeah. And I mean, look, man, Tommy Thayer was was, uh, you know, he was Ace's guitar tech. You know, like Tommy Thayer knew how to play all those songs. Yeah. So I, you know, I wouldn't say that Ace Frehley is the most terrific guitar player. Influential? Yeah. It's like saying Nirvana is the greatest band ever. It's like, nah, but influential? Sure. Unreal. Sure. Yeah. So, so like, I mean, in, in honor of this announcement, I do feel like we need to give some time on this show to the enterprise that is, was, and possibly will forever be kiss uh partly because i know that they're a very important band to you and I, if people didn't know this you've just proven it in the first five minutes of of this episode because <laughs> you just took over oh. which is exactly yeah. what i wanted you to do tell us a little bit uh, about your relationship with this band yeah so so the first kiss record i got was kiss alive too so i didn't get uh-huh. the first record so um i must have been in second or third grade so okay. it's like the early 80s yep. yep and so the makeup still existed yep i still had the suspension suspicion of suspension of disbelief was still wacky because i didn't understand yep um a bit and i saw kiss meets the phantom of the park that was weird um tell me about that like it's an awful, terrible movie and uh, <laughs> terrible plot, terrible everything. Like it, it just it's an awful movie. And the best thing is watching it is that they had to overdub uh, a lot of Ace's dialogue. So like you'll see Ace. Really? Um, Ace will have a, a line and like it's not even at all what Ace, you know, Ace is uh, Ace kind of mumbles at this point. But like, yeah, man, a big high pitched sounding guy doing aces dialogue is totally weird and you know it's like and gene simmons like has like a demon voice <laughs> star child uh so that that stinks but so i i did watch mtv when jj jackson was hosting and they unveiled um them without makeup oh. and you got to see was that and, weird and, were you like looking forward to that was that an event that people were talking about no, I didn't have a I didn't like know the 
there wasn't like a big setup to where I was excited. Like I just, you know, it kind of yeah. found out yeah. there wasn't like a, you know, it was an event obviously, and they definitely took advantage of it. I mean, their career was definitely on the downturn and, and regardless of what people say about Vinnie Vincent, like, you know, he, he got them back on the map with lick it up and, um, and he wrote, I love it loud, which, uh, I think that's right. Uh, I don't know. But, um, but like Vinnie helped get them on the map, writing some great songs um, and, and this is how nerdy I was. So in 84, they put out a VHS tape that was a live concert from Detroit from Cobo Hall. It was the Animalize live tour. And I took a, a boom box and recorded it the audio from yes, the TV yes, onto a cassette so I could listen to it on a, on a Walkman. Um, and I memorized the moves and I, the cues and, and all the things that they would do. And I thought it was so cool and so rock and roll, but you know, to the thing, the thing that was different about them now that I'm sure that, that Paul Stanley wouldn't like to talk about is that they, they went blue, you know? And so like before, like the, you know, honey, I didn't know pistol. That's my love gun. You know, it's like the whole story about love gun was like him going to the doctor. He's like, I think I need to see a doctor. You know, it's like the whole thing <laughs> was just, just incredibly caked in, um, really cheesy sexual everything. And as a 10 year old, I didn't have to have that explained to me. You know, it's like, I understood he was talking about his penis. Right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I didn't understand what fits like a glove was, but I knew it was about something involving nakedness yeah. and doing stuff yeah, and things and things going places. So um, you, you and I have very different entry points to kiss for obvious reasons. I mean, some of it's upbringing, some of it's age, right? So you're going to let, you're going to laugh your face off. You want to know what my first, my first reference to, to kiss was. I just, I had to think about this when I was preparing this about like, where was my introduction? And it was their 1992 cover of God gave rock and roll to you to you yeah part and, two and do right? you do you know why i knew that song is it for, is it the bill and ted part two okay so from, yeah this? it was on bill and ted bogus journey but it was that's not why I, that's not why i knew the song originally the reason the song was familiar to me is it was also covered because it's an argent song it's a rod argent he wrote yeah. that song yeah yeah and yeah. it was also covered by a little rock band called petra <laughs> Oh my God! That's why no, you know. That's why oh I know it. And they did it oh in '77. So Argent did it, and then Petra did it, and then Kiss did it. Twenty years or fifteen years later, and but I, I you know, I didn't know. I just knew it as a Petra song, and then somebody played it, said it. Oh, that's a Kiss song or whatever, right? So like, at some point, those wires got crossed, and I never knew. But yeah, if oh. we've never talked about Petra on this band on this show, I feel like at some point we're gonna have to talk about Petra. But if you do not know, Petra is. The basically like the first and actually it's I'm such a nerd that I know I know that they're not actually the first. There's a couple other bands we could talk about, but they're one of the first and especially in the quote unquote hard rock genre. They're one of the first 
Christian rock bands. And they, they, were, they became kind of like a Kiss. Not There was no makeup, but they were an institution. And I don't know if they still perform, but up through, you know, for like 30 years or so, they would just change out members and singers and that sort of thing, right? I, I, have, two, I have two things. I was really hoping that you would tell me that your introduction to Kiss was the song that Paul Stanley and Michael Bolton wrote, which was a top 10 hit for Kiss called Forever. That was on 1990s Hot in the Shade. Because if that was it, I was going to be like, that was going to blow my mind. I wish. Um, no. That's the first thing. And then secondly, look, Preacher's Kid, did did you listen to Striper? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so I was, you did. That was a thing. Yes, okay. I, I definitely listened to Striper. And Striper was cooler, in my opinion, than Petra. Petra was very yeah. much like, like, let's just talk about Jesus all the time. Whereas Striper was... There was love songs. Yeah, it was still, it was rock and roll. It was more like Christian rock kind of became, which was like, a, a, you know, a gambit for money for an audience that was willing to pay for it. Yeah, I mean, like, and, I, and that sounds cynical, but like, you know, Petra was really in it. They were like touring churches and stuff, right? And it's always been a spiritual, let's convert people. Whereas like, you know, a lot of Christian rock now, is that's not really the case. So yeah. uh, in Striper, you know, it kind of depends on the era, but, um, you know, there was always an edge to Striper that made him a little cooler. But that's, we're not here yeah. to talk about Striper. Striper, we could do that all night. <laughs> what we are here to talk about uh, is uh, it does have to do with spirituality and Kiss, right? Because of all of the stuff, I feel like there's a million things we could do, we could talk about with Kiss, but it really boils down to one simple question, since I am the one propelling this conversation tonight, Murdoch, and that is, is Kiss truly all about Satan? And oh, night, night and Satan service? And thing. to drill a little deeper, as a part of this supposed allegiance to the Dark Prince, did Kiss actually put their actual blood into the ink of a comic book yes i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna say yes i mean this is a ridiculous concept but it does seem like if any band would be willing to do something like this kiss would be the prime candidate and growing up in a religious household i definitely heard it said that there was a satanic element to this band right Hmm. wow In, in, in the 80s and the early 90s that was how you struck fear in the suburbs the word satanic you just yes. used it, and it would remind us all of this idea of satanic panic. All right, have you ever heard that term? Yeah, it was it was used quite a lot by Jim Baker's wife yeah, yeah, and yeah, Tipper yeah, Gore, and then yeah. it was all it was all in the PMRC. It, it, it was part of their thing. Now, if you have not listened to our episode on the PMRC, go find it. Wasp versus the PRMC, and it's a, a really really fun episode where Murdoch takes us on a deep dive of some of that. But I, just to illustrate what Satanic Panic was truly like, this is a clip from an actual episode of <laughs> Sally Jesse Raphael. Okay. <gasps> You remember? You remember her? Phil Donahue Dude, and Sally do Jesse. I remember her. Yeah. They they were responsible, in my opinion, for Satanic Panic. Listen to this. Dave, you have uh, expressed what you feel about Zena Nicholas. What do you feel about Susanna, who it sounds to us is a nature, nature worshiper, much in the style of an old-fashioned uh, hedonist? Right. Yeah, I, I hope I can be able to say just a Very few quickly. words, and that'll be all. I think, first of all, that the Satanists have said enough to hang themselves, okay? Now... Uh, 
so, I mean, this was happening on daytime television, right? Like, we're yeah. not talking, this isn't like Showtime or HBO or. Oh, like, yeah. I no, watched no, no, all no. this crap, dude. You really loved it. You're, you're homesick from school, and there's a bunch of white people on a panel talking about how any teenager that looks a little screwy must be worshiping Satan. And, I, you know, I have to make a quick aside here that if you want to you do more on this topic, you can check out Rock and Roll versus Satanic Messages, which is also an episode earlier in our catalog where we talk about backmasking. Again, Murdoch takes us on a beautiful journey. Uh, and for a fictional but believable exploration of this, which I had forgotten about until my brother and I read this novel last year or the year before called Ill Will. It's by this guy, Dan Chan. And it deals with this particular phenomenon of the exploitation of the idea that, like, if a kid's weird, he must worship the devil. And, like, I don't feel yeah. like you hear that as much anymore. But I do remember as a kid and as a teenager that being a thing. And and so you and I grew up in such different households, and I, I I'm sure I've said this out loud, but so these glasses that I'm wearing, I had when I was eight, blind as a bat as a kid, <laughs> and 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 then we didn't go to church, right, right, right. And I'm and I'm double jointed. Have you ever have we ever have we ever talked about that? Can you see my fingers? Yes, we did recently. We were you yeah. recently when you were over at my house uh, oh, post yeah. post pandemic. We were you were talking about how kids thought you were worship Satan because of your I, double jointedness. Because it was the double jointed and then not going to church, and yeah. and it really was ostracizing. It really it really sucked. Like it took a while before I was like, yeah, man, I'm burning crosses in my backyard and drinking goat's blood and. You know, screwing monkeys like I just, you know, like what what do you know what you guys are even talking about? Like, I don't understand anything about any of uh, any of this. Um, I mean, I, and I think yeah. I think it's important to point out how prevalent this was. Like it was very much an of the time thing. And especially we both grew up in more rural Midwestern ish, Southern ish areas. Uh, and and I, I I'm assuming that Tennessee, it was probably a hotbed for this sort of attitude. Yeah, I was saying, you're going to call it Midwest, my ass. There's nothing Midwest about where I grew up, man. Like the Nathan Bedford Forest is being dug up in Memphis, Tennessee and being brought to my home county, dude. Right now, as oh. we speak, oh, uh, they're moving him and his wife to the oh, Confederate gosh. Museum that's in my county. Oh, man. Um, yeah, so... That you know, there in my hometown, there's a lot of churches, uh, flower shops, and funeral homes. Yeah, yeah. So, but before we right. actually answer this question of whether or not uh, the the '80s influences are to be believed, and Kiss was really in the service of Satan, let's do a little deep dive on Kiss the band and go a little further back than the '80s. Uh, let me ask you this: Have you ever listened to Wicked Lester? Yes. Okay, let's listen to some Wicked Lester. That is Sweet Ophelia from 1971 from a little band called Wicked Lester. Tell us about Wicked Lester, Mark. Um, Well, it predates Kiss and it sucks. Um, (laughs) It sounds like like the band. Like, yeah. (laughs) it's absolute absolutely not good and 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 so you know it it was once you you heard it as a kiss fan it was kind of hard to get your head around that this was actually a thing you know everybody had to start somewhere you know yeah yeah Um, gene and paul they gene and paul were in this band together 
right? And it's 71. They get signed. They record it. And then Epic Records thinks better of it, and they shelve it. It never gets actually released. So uh, the stuff that's floating around out there, like what you just heard, is, is kind of bootleggy, and it doesn't sound great because there's not official recordings of this stuff. Um, yeah. There, there is, by the way, um, I actually have it, like, right here, dude. Um, and I, I can, like, pretty much get us right to it. There, There is, um, let's see, I think it was, what's well, actually been almost 10 years or so now, where there was this, uh, I can send this to you, but uh, it was in, they, they released these, someone got a hold of these loft rehearsals before they were signed, and... They were like kind of a, I mean, you know, first the makeup was kind of not there yet. Right, right. We'll talk about that. But, but also, they were kind of garagey more so, like the the rawness, kind of like definitely the songs weren't as thought out and and polished as much, and and it sounds really good. And it's like the antithesis of Wicked Lester, but it also has this kind of scrappiness that you never like kiss never felt like a scrappy yeah, band yeah, like yeah. it always is contrived well and, and speaking of bands that don't sound like kiss there's another band in new york at the time that also gets a record deal on mca records called chelsea have you ever listened to chelsea no that's a that's new to me yeah this is chelsea Yeah, so, so Chelsea, Chelsea's legitimately got an album out in, in 1970, and they're looking to try to record their follow-up, and things start to fall apart. The guys don't really get along, and the guy who has been playing drums for them takes out an ad in the East Coast edition of Rolling Stone, letting the world know that he is in need of a band, and that oh. is how Gene and Paul meet Peter Chris. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting to hear, like, I mean, I've listened back, Maybe I've listened to some Kiss like YouTube videos from the reunion tours in the last twelve months. <laughs> Whatever you've been and, to the and, reunion tour. Um, I mean, I saw it in person. Yeah, but it's like it's so weird. His his kick drum is definitive. It's very interesting, and it's like, is there a, really a snare in there? It's real <laughs> strange. His drum sound is really uh. different. So Peter eventually auditions, and from the jump, they know a few things, right? Number one is this band is going to rock harder than any of that crap they were involved with him before. Uh, and that they might need to wear costumes and wear makeup. And so it's November 1972. Gene calls up his old friend at Epic, and he says, I've got this newish thing I want you to check out. And they get a, they get a showcase. And they don't only get the showcase, they actually get a new record deal. And in, so that's in November. In January, they audition a guy named Ace, and the team, as we know it now, is formed. So let's talk about the name. This gets us back to this question about what hand does Beelzebub play in the the history and future of this rock and roll band? Does indeed KISS stand for, say it. Knights in Satan's service. Right, so I've always heard this. Now, I kind of yeah. always quasi thought it was, it, it is what it stood for. Like, I, I figured it was maybe like a half joke. But I always thought it was sort of real. What, how about you? Um, when I was younger, I thought it was real. Um, and then I saw an interview with Ace, 
where, and you know, I think that, you know, <laughs> Ace has probably had a hard time having to deal with sitting next to Paul in interviews for years <laughs> to talk about, you know, the most important thing about Kith. Um, but, you know, like, Ace kind of has to do those pandering interviews to talk yep, about, yep. like, you know, the rest is history. But I heard Ace <laughs> say that it was his, right? That's what he says. Dude. Like, that's that's the, but I I thought that Ace came up with it and just said, why don't we call it Kiss? So, I okay, thought that so was it. here's here's the story. Uh, you kind of have it, right? And this is, this is beautiful. This is what this is all about, right? Uh, supposedly the name is Paul's Creation because Peter was not only in Chelsea, he had, before Chelsea, had been in a band called Lips. So he and Gene and Paul are driving around New York City, and they're talking about possible band names, and Paul says, oh, you were in Lips. What if we were Kiss? And they all kind of dig it. So they show up at this club where they're going to play, and on the poster outside, they still have them listed as Wicked Lester. So Ace, uh-huh. Ace right. pulls out a marker, and he writes Kiss on top of Wicked Lester, but he makes the wow. S's, just for style fun, he makes the S's look like lightning bolts. And it yeah. sticks. Stanley eventually designs the official logo it, it, with a Sharpie and with a ruler, but he accidentally draws the two S's non-parallel because he just did it without measuring it, even though he had a ruler. And the art department <laughs> asks him, like, hey, do you want us to fix this? And he's like, nah, just, just leave it the way it is. So... This begs the question: If that's actually the true story, and they were, it was like literally like they said "kiss" in response to the term "lips." Why did this rumor take off about the name? So, Gene's autobiography. Have you read Gene's autobiography? It seems like you would have. Uh, yeah, a long time ago, I did. I, I didn't. I definitely didn't like it as much as Paul's. So um, this is definitely a- Paul's audiobook. For God's sakes. Go ahead. This is actually in Gene's autobiography. Quote, misinformation about the band began to spread in the Southern Bible Belt states, including where you and I were living, including a rumor that the name Kiss stood for Knights in Satan's service and that the four of us were devil worshipers. Ironically, this rumor started, now he's getting to it, as a result of an interview I gave in Circus Magazine after our first album. In response to a question, I said that I sometimes wondered what human flesh tastes like. <laughs> I never I never wanted to find out this is Gene talking. I never actually wanted to find that out, but I was curious intellectually. Later on this comment seemed to ignite this whole idea that in some way Kiss was aligned with devil worship, right? Say so you you take that quote and you put it with Sally Jesse Raphael and boom. Uh so wow. The first reason of course, uh he he said I simply refused to answer any questions about this afterwards. And the first reason, of course, was that it was good press. Let people wonder. The other reason was my complete disregard for the people who were asking. Through the years, whenever religious fanatics accosted me, especially in the southern states, like the ones where we were living, and quoted the Old Testament at me, I would quote them back chapter and verse. They did not know that I had been a theology major in school. An idiot is an idiot whether he quotes the Bible or not. Ah, End quote. Wow. So we established that the name is not an acronym that involves the devil, right? So there's there's one yeah. rock and roll bedtime story to put the rest. But there is an interesting story about the name and logo that I did not know. Did you know that in a large part of the world they use a different logo? Yes, absolutely. And it and it uh, uh, the, the when I was first introduced to it, there was this compilation called um, Killers, and. And this is where I learned as a kid what why. 
and it was the the SS. You know, they they switched it to where it kind of looks like ZZ. Yep. So it didn't look like the Nazi SS insignia. The letters, um, the way they were rendered by Paul and by that art department, definitely look like the Nazi insignia. <laughs> they yeah, definitely by, do. By, by a Jewish guy. Right. Yeah. I mean, ironically, Simmons and Stanley, both very Jewish. And of course, they've yeah. denied doing this intentionally at all. Today's episode is brought to you by Omeo travel booking platform that makes planning a journey in Europe and North America effortless. You're getting out of your house. You're getting out of your house. Uh, Omeo can make it really easy for you um, by offering 5% off your next booking. Just head to omeo.com and use the code listener five at checkout. It's valid until the 30th of June for new users on all modes of transport. All you have to do is enter your travel details and Omeo will magically give you all the train bus flight and ferry options for your journey. It's that easy. Omeo plan book and love the journey terms and conditions apply are we going to talk about paul's ear uh, do you know anything no hit me let's talk about paul's ear oh my gosh dude he was he was born with this thing i think it's called micro micro to I, I don't know how to pronounce it but it it he had a his right ear was deformed and he was deaf as a kid really and he got he was bullied for it tons mm -hmm. so he you know that's the the hair was always like a thing but it he was really like it was something that was he was really insecure about okay and you know making yourself into like you know a rock star and having the hair like you know it kind of helps yeah. cover that up yeah but, yeah, yeah but yet so you would never know that, I mean, really, he had like a, a deformity, like his ear was like mangled. Just so uh, I never really knew whether he got his hearing back. I gather he must like, you know, like Stevie Wonder. Huh? Um, is he really deaf? Um, <laughs> is Stevie Wonder really blind? Um, a, yeah, rumor, a rumor we have not dug into yet on uh, yeah. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Um, yeah. So but but yeah, so it's it's different. The KISS logo is different in different places. I mean, I, I guess it's like Europe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so here's the deal. I didn't. This is a, a fact that I did not know and I think is very interesting that uh, the SS symbol is outlawed in Germany by Section yes. 86A of the German Criminal Code. It is actually illegal to use it since 1979. So most of the band's album covers and merchandise in Germany have used a different logo in which the letters SS do, like you said, look a little more like Z's. Um, backwards, and this logo has is used in Austria. It's used in Switzerland. It's used in mm. Poland. It's used in Lithuania, Hungary, Israel. All use this other logo for Kiss, which wow. is does really. I mean, you you get it. You're like, oh, Kiss, I guess, but it is different. You you notice it. It's not subtle, and and it's but it's on like it's on the product. Yeah, but they don't switch the sign, right? Like. Okay, so the that, sign is the same. The sign is a very important part of this, right? If we're going back to this this uh, story about or this question of like why did this rumor the Knights and Satan services what Kiss stand for really take off? Why did why when they chose to not acknowledge it or actually deny it? Why did it catch fire? And I think that sign becomes a big part of it, right? They were literally one of the first popular bands ever to make a huge lighted backdrop bearing their name, an integral part of their stage shows. I mean, it's from iconic beginning. from the very beginning, and and that's one. Thing Thing I found in my research is that the makeup came very quickly. Um, yeah, you know, it was always kind of a part of the business plan for them, which is very, very interesting to me. But um, so 
yeah, so you you take this this big lighted backdrop that has their name on it as one component, and then you realize they've always put it in uppercase letters like it was an acronym. It kind of looks like an acronym. And that it employed that a lightning bolt font, which made those final two letters look a little fishy. And you can't blame folks for thinking that Kiss might have had a darker meaning, right? And it's not like Gene and the boys didn't lean into this, right? I mean, they like they've already said, they didn't really deny it. And then Simmons, in like one of their very first interviews, which I'm sure you've probably seen, uh, he calls himself evil or, or incarnate. Yeah. Have you seen that? It's like oh, the yeah. first time, I think it's Mike Douglas, it's like the first TV interview he ever does. So, I mean, he can play innocent in his autobiography, but they definitely leaned into this whole thing quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, eventually, like, you know, once the makeup came off and uh, in the 80s, there was a, you know, when they looked really ridiculous uh, and Paul and Gene were on Oprah, like it started coming out like he started talking about the Polaroids or whatever. And and that with, you know, the whole misogyny of of like Kiss in the 80s and metal or whatever, like that's a pretty crass, crazy thing to say that you have 4,000, 6,000 Polaroids laying around. Uh, and the whole idea yeah. that this really crazy, ugly looking dude, uh, is, you know, it's like they, you know, they understood what press and publicity was oh, from yeah. the beginning. Yeah. And Jeans, it was always of part of the gig. So yeah, it was always part of the gig. And then there was merchandising. <laughs> yeah, and so so we're gonna get to that. We're gonna get to that. I will t- use this as an excuse right now to tell us a personal story that tangentially involves Gene Simmons, which is and, and his ability to merchandise all the way to into the two thousands. So in the early two thousands, I was part of a morning show uh, on on terrestrial radio with a uh, woman named Jennifer, and Jennifer would occasionally have her dad call into the show because he was a character, and he was like a community college professor, but he would take these gigs to travel and at the time I was in Arkansas but I had lived in Kentucky before and so we would do this uh, segment every every spring when he would take this gig to go from Texas where he lived to Kentucky and I forget what the circumstances were but he would basically go to be a celebrity handle handler at Churchill Downs for the Derby and so yeah so we would call him and do this like this segment on the radio show um, just because it was funny and interesting. And so one year, I remember specifically, we called him and we said, Peter, who did you who did you get as your, your celebrity you have to handle? And he said, you're never going to believe it, but they're shooting this reality show for A&E called The Family Jewels. And it yep. stars Gene Simmons and Shannon Tweed. And I have to, I have to be with them for the next like four days. So we kept getting these stories from Peter of what was actually happening on the set. And he, I mean, the first thing he told us was every single bit of this show is fake. So just know that up front. He was like nothing, you know, I mean, that goes back to the calculated stuff that we've all heard about Gene Simmons. Right. And, and, but he said they would literally like, plot it like it was a stage show and they'd say okay now you're going to walk in and you're going to walk over there and you're going to take three steps and you're going to turn to the camera and then you're going to say hey shannon where's the blah 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 like it was to that degree um but it was yeah. really interesting to hear all of that and now knowing all of this that you hear about his calculations and things and, and just in life and with the band uh, it all makes a lot of sense yeah and and i uh, maybe i watched that show a lot and and i definitely i definitely could tell that it definitely felt really phony. A lot of it, and like they, Shannon and Gene both got plastic surgery, Ugh. and they did an yep. episode about that, and that was really strange. They did that, but at some point, um, 
there I never knew like it all seemed phony until there was a storyline in the show to where Shannon seemed like she was kind of fed up and and maybe done with the marriage and done with the gene the gene character you know yep yep well i mean that's a lot can you imagine can you imagine i mean granted there's good things that come with it like the merchandising but for the most part that's a lot yeah yeah and he's an arrogant egomaniac i mean it kind of goes with the the territory with with guys like him i don't i don't mind throwing shade at the guy but i i really wondered at that time whether that was real because you know that's some that's some sensitive stuff for people that have to that have had to go through breaks up breakups of marriages and, yeah. and things like that or, or and having to watch that like it's like well is that real because the the fact that right. it got me to where if that was fake I was like oh it just feels dirty like it felt dirty every time he was in the room of the show with all the crap he had like the room with all the merchandise yeah. and like all of his toys or yeah. whatever like. That felt weird too, you know. Yeah. It's like, you know, uh, it, it just felt like you're at the toys, the Kiss Toys R Us thing. It's his room. Um, well, I mean, like, like collectibles. As, as a fan that from childhood, like that you were, like, was it hard for you to come to grips to this uh, with this idea that, like, oh, this is all just a business thing for this guy? Like, was there ever a part of you that was a, like really hoped that it was a, I mean, even though you knew it was cartoonish and silly. Uh, when I when I found out, as John Lennon would say, was 1990, because I can place it. Okay. So I saw that tour, and Slaughter opened up. By the way, hell yeah. Um, and there's the Vinnie Vincent invasion, just uh-huh. you know, basically with a different guitar player. Funny, right? Yeah. <laughs> Vinnie Vincent used to be the yeah. But um, I I used to buy bootlegs from this guy in Canada, so I had oh all these God. like heavy metal bootlegs, like Kiss and, bootlegs or just heavy metal bootlegs in general. Oh, heavy metal, like everybody. Dude, so. I love that you were like this heavy metal bootleg kid. Like I I just love it. it makes me so happy. Yeah, yeah. Go I ahead. had a I, I'd get a catalog, you know, and I'd buy it and I'd get. <laughs> Times get were really sits. different, kids. Times were really different. I remember buying cassettes. I had some shows from that 1990 Kiss tour, and that's when I realized that that all the shows were exactly, exactly the, the same. same. Exactly. You know, it's same. like it's it's different when I I did realize like songs from other bands would have like the the same sort of thing. My favorite thing now is when when James Hetfield of Metallica goes, "Do you want heavy? Metallica gives you heavy." And they play <laughs> uh, "Sad but True." Like he's that's and he has to say that every night, and it's so fucking stupid sounding it is it's like it's ridiculous sounding now oh man but that's that's what i knew but but i knew that they were different and i knew that it was manufactured yeah um you know and i got to i got to take my little girl to a kiss concert and she was like why do they keep saying louisville over and over again i'm like well they it's written on the stage insert insert name (laughs) um you know but yeah and so and, and and that really did, you know, it probably really did sour a lot of like how I, at that point, what I listened to. They did put out a record in 92 called Revenge right. that Vinnie Vincent wasn't on. And it also had God um, Gave Rock and Roll Part 2 on it. Right. Eric Singer, who now is the drummer, was playing drums on that because Eric Carr had died. Um, but they had 
uh, Bruce, amazing guitar player, was still playing with them. But Vinnie Vincent wrote some of those songs. And those songs were some of the strongest songs they wrote in the 90s. Um, Carnival of Souls, which is right before the re- that they were working on a record and like that record got canned because they decided to have the reunion tour. And then they just kind of threw that record out. And you're like, oh, they were playing songs and drop. E, like I mean, drop D. Like they were playing <laughs> songs that like the the other metal bands of the era were playing. Yep, you know, yep. trying to fit in with with that heavier sound. Right. Um, but yeah, and so I was I was totally out of it until, um, you know, I saw them with Tupac on the Grammys or whatever, and then uh, yeah, I, I paid a ticket and I went to go see them. I saw that reunion tour in '96. So we've established first that Knights of Satan service was not actually what the name stands for. So we've put that to rest and we've established yeah. that they are very larger than life, uh, a bit comic booky as you, as you might say. So let's right. get to this crazy comic book rumor, right? But first let's, yeah. let's go back, um, back to the seventies for a minute. You got us all the way up to the late nineties. The first kiss performance took place on January 30th, 1973 for an audience of fewer than 10 people at the popcorn club renamed shortly afterwards to be the Coventry or Coventry in yep. Queens. Uh, the band was paid 50 bucks. They got to perform two sets and this all came about because Gene made a cold call uh, to the venue and convinced them to hire this new band for a three night stand. And so for the first three gigs, January 30th to February 1st, they wore makeup, but the iconic character designs associated with kiss didn't make their de- debut until March. So this is, yeah, so it's about a month. Um, So to summarize the next few years, the guys get some decent attention from decent players and end up with a record deal. But Kiss is like this interesting case study of a band who was ahead of their time in a certain way. They were like a 2021 band stuck in 1974. And what I mean by that is the records didn't sell, uh, but the (laughs) the energy and reputation they were earning was all about the live show. Live show. I mean, this is the thing that happens to a lot of bands. It happens in the 80s, too. But uh, this is another infamous part of the band, right? The live show. Most people, even if they haven't seen them, have heard about Kiss concerts. I'll be honest, I've not seen a Kiss concert. But I have heard about Simmons spitting blood and breathing fire and Ace soloing as his guitar bursts into flames and Peter Chris elevating the drum riser and it emitting sparks and Paul smashing his guitar like he's Pete freaking Townsend and all the pyrotechnics, right? So quick aside, do you know how they did that stuff? Uh, The the breathing fire was kerosene, Mm -hmm. um, which is terrifying. Yep. That, that that's actually a thing. How about the spitting uh, blood? You know, I don't I don't know what the the blood was. What eggs, was the blood? yogurt, red food coloring, and maple syrup. Okay, so it was kind of maybe decent tasting. And do you know uh, how do you know how Ace uh, made his guitar burst into flames? Um, well, the the flames came through the 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 pickups of the guitar. Yeah, and then they had a string and they hung it up. So how did I? I that's all I, I, mean, I would see that mostly light and smoke bombs. Smoke bomb. Uh-huh. Yeah, smoke. Because it never was really see that. There's the thing. Did it ever? Were they in flames? Nope. It was just smoke. It's all and theater. Then it would, and then it would just go up into the ceiling. Yep. yep. And then uh, yeah. So I don't know how Paul would do the guitar then but now like at the end at the end of the shows now rock and roll night has a different guitar which he breaks in half and then they sell 
you can buy that broken guitar. Listen, every man, show. everything's for sale. Everything's for yeah. sale with those guys. So by mid-75, Casablanca, the record label that was putting on Kiss Records, was not selling anything. They were almost bankrupt. And Kiss was in danger of losing this record deal. So both Kiss and Casablanca desperately needed a commercial breakthrough. So let me ask you, I know you are a, you are a very smart man. You've made it very far in life so far. Uh, how do you take a band that essentially is only good live and sell albums? What do you do? if you're going to need to save their career. Do I get to just answer this completely? Yeah. 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 What do you do? <laughs> you, 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 you make a, a live album. Yeah, you do. And then, and then, <laughs> and then you, you do overdubs to where yeah. the show sucks. And then you add fake audience noise to make it sound like it's even crazier. Um... And Eddie, and Eddie Kramer of all people, um, Electric Ladyland was involved in adding yep. the yep. the voc- the 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 screaming stuff, and I always thought when I was ten, when I was listening to the Animalize live video on VHS, that the girl screams like they would say something about like you know about someone in the band yep. like some yep. sexual thing, and then the way the girls would scream sounded like over like distorted and, and whatever and I never understood like are all those girls really screaming and like I don't maybe they weren't <laughs> and then I got this backstory that yeah so that audience wasn't as excited as as you heard but but it created <laughs> it created this theater of the mind it totally did is what radio's radio is supposed to be but it created this theater of the mind that they were this unbelievable uh, live act which Kind of is true. Yeah, well, Good I mean... Good live band. Uh, yeah, totally. So, I mean, th- as you've already pointed out, it was compiled from concerts recorded between May and July in Wildwood, New Jersey, Detroit, and Cleveland. It was released at the end of 75. It, it goes gold. It spawns their first Top 40 single, which, of course, is a live version of Rock and Roll All Night with a bunch of overdubs. Uh, the success of this not only brings Kiss the breakthrough that they'd been seeking, but arguably saves Casablanca. Uh, and it gives them the firepower they need to make a little album called Destroy Her, released on March 15th, 1976. It sells okay at first, but it starts to tank quickly. So, since you were so eloquent at describing what you do with the last career problem that Kiss encountered, what do you think you do if you need to save Destroy Her before it goes up in flames? Go ahead. You, you, Go put, ahead. Out a, you put out a B-side. Here's what happened. They they put out a song, and they send it to radio, and it doesn't really work. But then a guy like in Minnesota, I think, decides to turn it over one night, and he plays this song. Yes. Oh, I got a court story about this song. <laughs> this is a little story. For those uninitiated who aren't currently getting goosebumps up and down their arms, this is a little song called Beth, and it was the B-side to... Detroit Rock City. You calling, Detroit Rock City's better. Yeah, man, but it's all about the ballad. It's all about the ballad. This song ends up saving them again, uh, and they end up re-releasing that single and just flipping it. So when they, you know, this was back in the day when they would actually put out the, you know, the physical record. One side you'd have one song, and the other side you have the other song. That's hence the term B side. And and they flipped it. So now the A side became Beth, and the B side became Detroit 
Rock City. So I, that's yeah. that's crazy. Tell me your tell me your Beth story. In '96, there were lots of bands that were excited to to get that opening slot on this reunion tour. Yeah, right, right, right. And and one of those bands that screwed it up was Alice in Chains. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, Lane's drug problem was was a was something that Gene has actually spoken about. Um, like I, I guess it was just just way too out in the open. Yeah, uh, and it could just be more than Lane. I guess. I mean, they were kind of a mess, but. There, there was a show, and I don't know where it was, but I actually, I actually listened to the Alice in Chains set, and somewhere in the Alice in Chains set, someone, and I don't think it's Lane, gets on the mic and starts singing Beth, just like warbly, like singing it, <laughs> and that's how you get kicked off freaking tour. Uh, don't mess, don't um, mess with guys that have huge egos by making fun of their song. You know better than that. Uh, wow. Yeah. So back to the seventies. The other thing that pushes the mainstream is this appearance on the Paul Lynn Halloween special. Did you tell me you had that on VHS as a kid? I, I didn't, but I've seen it on YouTube. They sure. lip sync Detroit Rock City and Beth and King of the Nighttime World, uh, and this gets us all the way up. Now we're in seventy six, so this gets us to this comic book question. Which it, okay. So this is funny for me because you have been outspoken about your disdain for all things Marvel in 2021. Uh, but Marvel is a big part of this story because yeah. they are the ones who think, hey, let's take this comic book larger than life band and put them in an actual um, comic book. Now, do you know what comic book? They don't get their own at first. They get they get put into a Marvel property. Do you know what character's book they get into in their first appearance? I'm going to take a swing since I know nothing about this subject much at all. I, I did watch Endgame all three hours of it last week. Uh, how about Spider-Man? Is that right? It's not Spider-Man. and It's not Captain America. It's a different uh, hero or maybe an anti-hero, you might call him. Ant-Man? Um, Is it Ant-Man? Ant-Man? Uh, Paul Rudd? You're getting closer because you're getting to the animals. Uh, a Murdoch, their first appearance was in Howard the Duck. <laughs> oh no it can't be true i promise that's a hundred a hundred percent true a hundred percent true eventually marvel sees the potential synergy that exists between kisses personas and they say you know what let's do in 77 this super special kiss comic book and it becomes one of marvel's biggest sellers now when all of this is being concocted someone in the band's camp gene claims it was not him he says it was either bill Ockwin or sean delaney okay and he says uh it would really push this thing over the top, guys, if we get them to mix your blood into the ink. Because this is, you know, all these rumors are going wild and they're not denying anything. And people have already had this idea of Knights of Satan service. So Marvel goes for this gimmick. And the KISS members are allowed to, they allow to have their blood drawn during a concert stop. And they actually bring, and this is why it's like 100% legit, they they make a notary come. So, they, so this notary can notarize and say that it is officially their blood and then they later fly up to new york to be photographed adding their vials of donated blood to a barrel of red ink and i have this photograph it is in the show notes and it is ridiculous they are standing over a vat of ink with vials of blood grinning like small school children i cannot wait to watch Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park with you, Brian. I, I just like if you think if you think that's ridiculous, there's a whole damn movie of them like in a 
zoo park thing, whatever. Like who even who even knows what that movie's about at this point? So I don't even know. They're, they're not Knights in Satan's service, and they're not zookeepers no. apparently. But they they most definitely but, donated their DNA to a comic book. A couple of fun facts about this comic: uh, this was the first super special um, from Marvel, but it was actually the first in a series that Marvel was doing highlighting other bands. Did you know there is also a Marvel super special featuring the Beatles? No, 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 no. Never I, heard of that. I, I hadn't either. I would love to see it. And additionally, this sets off a Kiss comic book character side plot thing, right? So this has been going on since the late 70s, and it's continued. Uh, I believe there's still some things that, like, I don't know if there's anything actively being printed, but I think there's some storylines and stuff that still exist out there. I know at least through 2017, stuff was actively being printed. Tons of companies besides Marvel have gotten into the game. Some officially blessed by the band, others not, but even the ones that have been kind of unofficial, the band has publicly supported at different times, wearing, like, the uh, the comic um, the creators' t-shirts and stuff you know, on tour and in press stops. Um of course, all of the other Kiss comics have been missing a key ingredient, and that is the band member's blood. Uh, only, only that first one has has their blood in it. Uh, so this is this is where I want to end, though. So I want to look at what larger cultural effect this stunt has had. I I kind of thought maybe there was a precedent for putting your ink in blood, I, or your blood in ink. I actually can't find much on the history of that happening. You typically, you start looking around for that. The story that pops up the beginning of this conversation is, hey, did you know that Kiss did this in the 70s? Um, it definitely seems like it probably had its roots like in Harvest Moon Dances or Sanskrit or something. But what I did find are a few more recent examples of the influence of this stunt. So I, I put full story links in the show notes if you want to check these out. But here's a couple situations to note. One involves an artist in Brooklyn who used a machine in 2014 to create a large naked selfie out of his own blood for an art exhibit. So... That's something, if you want to see that. Uh, But the one that brings it back to music, actually, was in the news about three weeks ago. Uh, Maybe a little longer. There was a New York Times article. Uh, It was written by a guy named Brian Peach, and it is titled, Nike sues over unauthorized, quote-unquote, Satan shoes. Have you heard this story? Oh, yeah, yeah. So some workplaces encourage employees to donate blood as an act of charity, but six workers at MSCHF, that is, uh, I think you're supposed to pronounce it, Mischief, uh, a quirky company based in Brooklyn that's known for products like toaster-shaped bath bombs and rubber chicken bongs, offered their blood for a new line of shoe. Sacrificed is is what they're calling it. Did you just say rubber chicken bongs? Yeah, I know. I got really hung up on that, too. I, I kind of almost quit reading the article when I got to there and just Googled rubber chicken bongs. But hold on. A drop of blood is mixed in with the ink that fills an air bubble in a Nike Air Max 97. This is what they've done. Um, not much blood, actually, quote unquote, was collected. Um, but six people on the team at Mischief gave uh, blood to do this. Now, here's what they've done. They have basically called these 666 shoes. I mean, I don't know if one of them is Satan. I don't know how this qualifies as the devil, but uh, each pair costs $1,018. <laughs> and uh, this is uh, an actual follow-up to a shoe that they did before this called Jesus Shoes, where they took a pair of Nikes, I guess, and they inserted holy water. And those sold out in less than a minute around the same price point, I believe. So here, here is what they have done. They have gotten Lil Nas X. Yeah. Everyone knows him from um, 
what's the song? Old Town Road. Old Town Road. Uh, yeah. So Old Town Road Kid is is endorsing them now. Of course, Nike's pissed. They're having to publicly say we don't have anything to do with Lil Nas X or MSCHF mischief. Uh, Nike did not design or release these shoes, and we do not endorse them. Uh, and on Monday, Nike sued Mischief in U.S. District Court over these shoes, alleging that Mischief's, quote, unauthorized Satan shoes are likely to cause confusion and dilution and create an erroneous association between Mischief and Nike. So there you go. Kiss, still a very influential band, uh, both in their music and in their tomfoolery uh, all these years later. <laughs> it's crazy that that's the- just happened. If I was a judge in that case, I would I would throw it out and be like, hey, you know what? You guys are rich. This is great publicity. Dismissed. Dismissed. And go get the shoe with the weird pentagram on the uh, on the shoestring. The Satan shoes. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't yeah. who doesn't want a pair of Satan shoes? It's crazy that this gimmick still works. It's been around for forty plus years, and it's still selling things. So congratulations to Kiss and to Lil Nas X and to yeah. those hipsters in Brooklyn who. Or punching each other and getting blood out of... You know, they actually do ask in the article, they're like, so how'd you get the blood? And they're like, nah, we did it ourselves. <laughs> so, I don't know what that means. Yeah, we did it ourselves. And congratulations to everyone who spends over $100 on a pair of shoes. Like, the, I'm wearing a pair of shoes right now, and they cost $5. <laughs> Even. It's true. If you want to get involved in the show, if you have anything to say about Kiss, if you think you actually know more than Murdoch about Kiss, I'm telling you, you don't. Tempt us. Try us. Uh, it's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. Uh, and until next time, what should people keep doing? Oh, yeah. Keep telling stories. <laughs> Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.